condition called congenital insensitivity to pain, or CIPA. CIPA is a rare condition where a, a person cannot feel, nor have they ever felt, physical pain of any kind. Now, to be honest with you, when I, when I first heard about this condition, I thought, wow, you know, she can't feel pain. That sounds like a characteristic of a superhero, right? But what you find when you really think about it and when you hear this girl's story is that this condition, this inability to feel pain, this inability to know when you're hurting and in need is not a good thing. It's a scary condition to have. Check out this clip. girl with a condition so rare that no one, not even experts, know how many people it affects. It's known as CIPA, the inability to feel any physical pain. And that 12-year-old girl is using her diagnosis to make a difference. GMA special contributor Cameron Matheson had a chance to spend some time with her. Here's her story. What if pain, the thing that parents try hardest to protect their children from, what if that was the thing your child needed most? Everyone's like, oh, what a good baby you have. But as time went on, the red flags started going up. From the moment she was born, Ashlyn Blocker didn't cry when she was hungry or had diaper rash, or even when, at just eight months old, her parents took her to the eye doctor. When they put the dye in her eye, everyone just kind of gasped. She had a big corneal abrasion across her eye. They were astonished she wasn't in pain. It was then her parents got the shocking, devastating news. Their baby couldn't feel any pain. Isn't that something? By the way, that girl is, is now in, in middle school and is currently undergoing tests so that researchers can get a better idea of the condition that she has. But one thing I, I, I took away from this story is how thankful I am that Leslie and I, and that our kids can feel pain. You know, oftentimes when our, our kids get sick, or, or when they hurt, we hurt for them. We don't want them to hurt. We want the pain to go away. But what we learn from Ashlyn's story is that at times, feeling pain is a good thing. Pain is the way your body tells you that something is not right in that you're in need. Pain also helps your doctor out, doesn't it? Pain helps them to understand what the problem is and where the problem is so that they can properly diagnose it and, and prescribe medicine to, to uh, fix the problem. So feeling pain is one of the key ways to being healthy, isn't it? We don't often think about that, but it's true. Well, unfortunately, though, CIPA in a, in a literal and physical sense is a rare condition, it's much more common spiritually. Today we have many in our world who are spiritually sick, who are in desperate need of salvation, yet they have no idea that they are. But here's the difference between these two conditions. Though they don't have a cure for the physical condition, the condition is treatable spiritually. Scripture tells us that the Spirit of God 
through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, is able to open our eyes to this truth. He is able, through this book, through the Word of God, through the Scriptures, to awaken us from our spiritual slumber and reveal to us our sinfulness and our need of a Savior. Some will say, well, where do we go in the Scriptures to find these truths? Well, pick a book, right? Any book. These truths are found all throughout the Word of God. This message, the message of salvation, the message that we are sinners in need of a Savior is a a message that we find. It's the central message of the Bible. Throughout God's Word, God reveals to us that we are sinners in need. And throughout His Word, He reveals to us that He Himself is the solution. And we find that truth here in this small book, the book of Jonah, chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, turn there now. Jonah, chapter 2. We are continuing our sermon series through the book of Jonah this morning entitled, More Than a Fish. And last week, remember, I I explained to you that um, though the fish plays a key role in this Story. Unfortunately, verse 17 of chapter 1 is all many really remember of the story. We, we explained last week that the takeaway from this story for most people is that Jonah was swallowed by a fish, and then he was vomited out on dry land, and, and that's about it. But what you find when you really take time to study the book of Jonah is that this book is so much more than a book about a fish. This book contains great truths that that are important for all people at all times everywhere. Last week, we learned from this book that the book of Jonah is about a sovereign God, a God who is fully present everywhere and is who is in full control at all times in all places and over all people. And today in chapter 2, we learn that the book of Jonah is also about a saving God. It's about a sovereign God. It's about a saving God. We learn that our God, from this book, we learn that our God is a God who saves. Our God is a God who is able and who is willing to save. Let me ask you, is that, is that truth important in our world today? You bet it is. Throughout history, and, and especially today. Now, before we jump in to Jonah chapter 2, let me give you a a, a brief review for those of you all who missed last week. At the beginning of this book, we're told that God came to the prophet Jonah. And he said to Jonah, he said, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Their, Their evil has come up against me, come up before me, and I want you to go to them. I want you to preach against them and to them, and I want you to call for them to repent. And remember, Jonah doesn't simply say no, does he? He gets on a boat, and he heads in the opposite direction. God said, I want you to go east to Nineveh, and Jonah went west toward Tarshish. And we're told that the reason he was doing this was because he was trying to flee from the presence of God. He was trying to get beyond God's sights, to get beyond his scope. But we learn from chapter 1 that that place doesn't exist, right? Because God is everywhere, and he is sovereign everywhere over all things and he demonstrates this 
in this story in chapter 1 by appointing a storm that stops Jonah in his tracks. And it does, right? Remember those on the ship with Jonah? They try to get out of the storm. They try to get to dry land. They try to get beyond it, but they can't. They're stuck in the middle of the sea. And, and they're, they're all trying to figure out what's going on here. Whose God's been offended? Who's messed up? And they discover that it's Jonah's fault that they're in this situation. So they go to Jonah. And they say, how do we get out of this mess? And Jonah says, you're going to have to throw me in the sea. That will satisfy my God. But the men on the ship, they don't want to do that right away, right? They, they try their best in their own efforts to get out of it. They see it's not working. So they hoist Jonah up and over the boat and into the sea. And sure enough, when Jonah hits the water, the sky's clear, the wind ceases, and the storm ends. Now that's great news for the guys in the boat, right? What about for Jonah? Well, we learn at the end of chapter 1 that God appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah up. And we're told that Jonah is in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And that's where we pick up in chapter 2. You know, when I hear about people who have been through traumatic experiences, I don't know about you, but, but and I may be weird and think of this, but one question I always have is this. I often want to know, you, you know, what was that person thinking about? What was, what was going through their mind when that certain something happened to them? You'll notice when you watch specials on Dateline in 48 Hours in 2020 when they're covering a story of this nature, of a, of a person who's been through a tragic experience like someone who's been held at gunpoint. The, 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 the interviewer will often ask this question. What was, what was going through your mind at that moment? Well, in Jonah chapter 2, Jonah shares with his readers what was going through his mind while he was in the belly of the fish. Like I said a few times last week and once already today, when we think of this book, we often think of it as a story about a man and a fish, and that's about it. We think of a couple of key facts in this story, that Jonah was swallowed up by a fish, that he was spit out on dry ground, and that's about it. But what we often miss here is that there are some great truths that Jonah discovers from the belly of this fish. There are some great truths that Jonah discovered from this traumatic experience that he shares with us, his readers. After being thrown into the sea and swallowed up by this great fish, Jonah learns that his God, the one true God, the God of the scriptures, the God of, of all, is a saving God. And in this passage, he shares with us several great truths about salvation that he learns from this great fish. The first key truth is this. Number one, salvation is needed. Salvation is needed. Look at Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me all of your waves and your billows passed over me then I said I am driven away from your sight 
yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Now, like we said last week, Jonah is a unique book. Though it's considered a prophetic book, it doesn't contain much prophecy. Jonah is less preachy. It, it, it's more of a story. It tells a story. It's a narrative, okay? But what we find in chapter 2 of Jonah, in this passage, this passage is unique to the book of Jonah. Because for the, for, for the most part, in chapter 2, Jonah breaks from this narrative to give us a prayer that he prayed from the belly of the fish. Look at, look at verse 1 again. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. So what we have here in chapter 2, for the most part, is a prayer. Jonah is in the belly of the fish, and he prays this prayer to God. And notice, he doesn't give God a prayer request, but a praise. That's key. He doesn't say, God, deliver me from this fish. He says, God, thank you for appointing this fish. That's key to understanding this text. You know, growing up, when I heard the story of Jonah, I often thought of the fish as being the instrument of God's punishment that he uses against Jonah for his disobedience. But that's not what we see here. We learn here that the sea is God's instrument of punishment and the fish is his instrument of salvation. What's threatening Jonah's life is not the fish, folks. It's the sea. Jonah is about to drown in the midst of the sea for his disobedience and God being the gracious and merciful God that he is, he appoints a fish to swallow up Jonah and save him from drowning. Look at where we see this in the text. Look at verse 2. In verse 2, Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Here's what's going on here. You have Jonah and the fish praying, and in this prayer, he recalls upon the events that have just happened. Notice when he's speaking, he's speaking in the past tense. He, he says, I called out to the Lord. When? When did he call out to him? While he was in the water. He says, I was thrown into the water. I was drowning. I called out to the Lord, and the Lord answered me. How? By pointing a fish. Jonah says, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, past tense, and you heard my voice. He says, I was on the verge of death, and you saved me, God. Look at verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. He's about to drown here. Verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. You see, Jonah's life is being threatened by the sea. And it's at this point when Jonah cries out. He realizes his need and he cries out to God. At first, Jonah did not realize there was any danger, did he? Though the storm had come upon this boat, Jonah was not very concerned, was he? What was he doing? He was sleeping. Look at, look at the end of verse 5 in chapter 1. During the storm, we learn that Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. 
See, the ironic thing about chapter 1 is that the pagan sailors realized their need and Jonah, a prophet of God, did not. He did not see his need. But his tone changes in chapter 2, doesn't it? In chapter 2, Jonah explains his need. When, when he is thrown into the sea, we, we see here that he cries out to God and Jonah is saved. Believers, we find a great truth about salvation right here. Before one can be saved, they must first realize salvation is needed. That's key. You know, there have been times in the summer months when I've gone to the pool or, or to the lake or even on vacation to the beach, and I thought to myself, I can do without sunscreen today. And I didn't see a need for it, and I didn't put it on, and I had no protection from the scorching sun. And nine times out of ten, I, I regretted it. you think I'd learned something, but I didn't. Same is true when it comes to salvation. If you don't see you're in need of what Christ has done for you, then you will not receive it in faith. And if you do not receive it in faith, there will be no salvation for you. That's why it's key, believers, that we focus on sin when we share our faith. You know, there are, there are many today who avoid the topic of sin altogether. They say, I ah, don't harp on sin. It's just too negative. Just focus on the fact that God loves us no matter what. Well, though that sounds good and all, listen, if we don't focus on the truth of our sinfulness the fact that we've sinned against God and we stand against Him, people will fail to see their need for change. They'll fail to see a need for salvation. We've got to throw people out of the boat, folks. We do. We can't let them continue to sleep below deck in the midst of a storm headed for destruction. We can't. We have to share with them in love sharing the truth in love, that they're in a desperate state without Christ and let the Spirit of God bring them to the point where they see their need and trust in Him and in Him alone for salvation. And we learn this from Jonah. We learn from him that salvation is needed. We also learn this, that salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. Look at verses 6 through 7. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet, that's a key word there. Yet, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Notice the transition here, it's key. Jonah says, I was drowning. I was sinking. I was on the verge of death, but you, God, you brought me up from the pit. I was dying, O oh Lord, and you rescued me. Jonah was in a bad way, wasn't he? He was. He was on the verge of death in the midst of the sea. And notice he says here, he says, I remember the Lord, and I prayed, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. He says, I remembered you, God. I cried out to you. You heard me. You reached down to me. You rescued me. You saved me. And notice this. This is key. Jonah played no part whatsoever in God's saving work. He didn't. God didn't throw Jonah a life jacket for him to swim to. He didn't provide him with a boat to row himself out of the storm. God appointed a fish to swallow him up 
And he commanded that fish to vomit Jonah back up onto dry ground. Jonah was drowning. There was not a hope for him in the world. He was in the middle of the sea in the midst of this storm. And we're told in chapter 1, verse 17, that God appointed a fish to swallow him up. Chapter 2, verse 10, God commanded that fish to vomit him out. Jonah played no part whatsoever in any of that. His salvation was solely from the Lord. So here in Jonah's prayer, we learn another key truth. We learn that God is the author of salvation. We see that he's behind the scenes orchestrating this whole event. And not only did God provide the means and do all the work in saving Jonah, get this, he also gave Jonah the desire to be saved. Look again at verse 3. Jonah says, For you, God, cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves, your billows, passed over me notice Jonah says you cast me into the deep well I thought we learned in chapter 1 the men on the boat threw Jonah in why is he blaming God here for it because he realizes that God is orchestrating all of these events he rightly realizes that God is ultimately responsible for him being thrown into the sea notice he refers to the waves here as God's waves he says your waves and your billows passed over me. Jonah understands God is ultimately in control and has ultimately led him to this point. He is the one who has put him in this grim situation so that Jonah would cry out to him for help. God is also the one who provides the means for Jonah to be saved, and he is the one who saves him. That's why Jonah says what he does at the end of verse 9. Look at what he says. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. This is a key verse in this book. Salvation from start to finish is from God and from Him alone. And this is so important for us to understand in our world today, communicate to others, because there are many in our world today that that believe salvation belongs to me. Salvation is a work I do. And they're trying desperately to find it in the things of this world. How many of you parents have ever been out shopping with your kids and they throw this scenario out at you? They see something they really want and they say, if you get that for me, I will never, what? Ask for anything else ever again. How many of you have ever heard that? How many of y'all said that growing up? Yeah, that's right. I won't ask for anything else if you just give me that. And parents, tell me, what, what are you thinking in the back of your mind when you hear this? Do you believe it? No, of course not. You know that if you give in, this will be thrown right back at, uh, right back at you, you know, a, a month or a week or a day or even an hour later. Because that toy, that cup of ice cream, that piece of candy is not going to bring them lasting enjoyment, is it? It's not. There is no way for us to satisfy our kids long-term, give them lasting satisfaction from something that comes from the toy aisle at Walmart. It's just not going to happen. But now let's be honest, parents and other adults in here. How many of us still reason in this way today? We do, don't we? If 
I could just have that promotion, if I could just have his or her salary, if I could just have that person's nice, reliable vehicle, if I could just have that house or live in this neighborhood, then I would be happy. Many of us, we're looking for salvation in the things of this world. The book of Jonah reminds us that salvation is from God. If you're looking for satisfaction in this life, and if you're in, you're in hot pursuit of it, in the things of this world, listen, it will not be found. You will not find it. Temporal things cannot bring lasting satisfaction. It just makes sense, right? It does. So the book of Jonah tells us that there is a problem, that we're sinners in need of salvation, but it also tells us there's a solution that satisfies, and that's God. So we learn here that salvation is needed. Salvation is from the Lord. Lastly, Jonah shows us that salvation should also move us to worship. Salvation should move us to worship. When we talk about salvation, you know what? We often talk about what we've been saved from, and, and more often we talk about who we've been saved by. But rarely do we talk about what we've been saved for. And that's key to answer that as well. Jonah shows us in verses 8 and 9. He shows us that we have been saved for worship. He shows us that salvation should move us to worship. When he was saved by God from the sea by means of a fish, Jonah responds to God in worship. First, he speaks out against false worship. Notice verse 8. Look at what he says. He says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Now, some believe that Jonah is referring to the pagan shipmates here when he speaks out against idolatry. But remember at the end of, of, of uh, chapter 1, those men, when they were spared from the storm, they worshiped the one true God, right? And they made sacrifices and vows to him. And if Jonah wrote this book, which I believe he did, then he records that for us. So I don't think Jonah has the shipmates in mind here when he writes this. I think he's preaching to his audience. Remember at the beginning of this book, I told you that it's likely that Jonah's audience was the people of Israel. That's where he was from, and that's probably who he was writing to. And guess what big problem the people of Israel had throughout their history? Idolatry. Idolatry. More than likely, Jonah is sharing with them his salvation experience to, to prompt them to do away with their vain and useless idols that do not save. He's sharing with them his salvation story so that they would see that, that salvation is from the Lord so that they would be moved to worship him. That was Jonah's response. Look at verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. Jonah is saying this from the belly of the fish, folks. You see, Jonah says, because you have saved me, God, in turn, I will be thankful and I will sacrifice to you. I will worship you. Like I've said in the past, some have incorrectly concluded that being saved means to be off the hook, to be able to live however you want to live. That's not salvation. The purpose of salvation is not to free you up to partake in sin. It's to free you from the power of sin. 
It's to free people up to live for God and to worship Him. Therefore, sin should not result from salvation, but worship should. That's key. It's key that we understand that. Believers, we sang just a moment ago, you and I, we were made for worship. That's the reason God created us. And that's the reason He saved us. We have been made and we have been saved for Him to worship Him. Notice what else Jonah says toward the end of verse 9. He says, What I have vowed, past tense, I will now pay. Apparently at one time, Jonah had been on track spiritually. He was not always this running, fleeing, disobedient prophet. At one time, he had followed God. He had made commitments to God. He said, what I vowed long ago, I'm now going to follow. I'm now going to pay. He made vows long ago. He had made commitments, but he had not followed through with those commitments. Yet through this experience, God brings him back to those vows, those commitments, and he, he repents that he fleed from God and he recommits himself to follow him and to live under his rule and his reign. Maybe you're in Jonah's boat this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and maybe you've made Christ the Lord of your life at one time or another and maybe at one time you were running the race well but you've gotten off track somewhere along the way this is you, I want, I want to challenge you this very day to take time today to revisit those commitments that you made to the Lord when you first gave your life to Him and, and think back on the, the commitments that you've made to Him throughout the course of your spiritual life and recommit yourself to those things so that you can get back on track and get busy living for God, so that you can be who, you, who, who God created you to be and who He saved you to be, so you can get back to living a life following hard after Him, living under His rule and reign. That's two believers, but before we close, I want to say this to those of you all in here who are not trusting in Christ for your salvation. I want you to know, though I've been addressing believers primarily on this last point, this message has been primarily for you this morning. If you're here this morning and Christ is not the Lord of your life, if you're here and you are on the throne of your life, listen, you need to know these truths. You need to know that salvation is needed and that it's from the Lord. There are many who fail to realize this. There are many in our world today who think in this way. They think, you know what? Jesus is okay for some, but, but I don't really see a need for Jesus in my life. Things are good for me. I've got a great job, great friends, a loving family. Things are good for me. I don't need Jesus in my life. Listen, I want you to get this. Scripture is clear. That people who reason in this way, who think that there is a life to live apart from Christ are like Jonah in chapter 1. Sleeping soundly in the bottom of a boat in the midst of a storm headed for destruction. Proverbs 14, 12 says this. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. You may think you're okay because life's been good 
to you so far. You may not see any need of Christ in your life, but God clearly tells us in his word that a life lived apart from him is a life that is opposed to him. You need to see your need of salvation. You need to see that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and that that Savior is Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you, you understand. You understand there's a problem in our world today. And maybe you even understand that there's a problem with you. Maybe you've had to endure some trials in your life. And you know that, that, that life is just not the way it's supposed to be. Things just aren't right in our world. And maybe you've had personal struggles of your own. So you also realize that you have issues as well. Listen, God explains all of this in his word. He explains why things are not the way they're supposed to be. He explains why life at times is tough and why we're victimized by the things of this world and by others and why we have personal struggles, why we fail to be the type of people we would like to be. God tells us that the problem is ultimately our sin against God. Now, many don't like that. They don't like to be labeled as the problem. We'll admit that there is a problem and that there's someone to blame, but we don't even like to consider that we might be the problem. Yet Scripture says that we are. Scripture is clear that we have all sinned against God, which is why the world is the way that it is. And, and, and God's word is also clear that if that sin is not paid for, we will one day have to pay the ultimate price for it. But here's the good news. Scripture also tells us that God loved us so much that he sent Christ to pay the price for our sin in our place. He came and he was for us what we could never be for ourselves, perfect inside and out. And he came to provide for us what we could never provide for ourselves, a right relationship once again with the living God. Life and death and resurrection, he accomplished salvation for us, all of us who place our faith and trust in him. And today, if you are here and you would admit that you're a sinner who is against God, and if you would turn from that sin and turn back to God and personally receive the work done by His Son, the Lord Jesus, on your behalf, if you would trust in Him and in Him alone for your salvation, get this, you can be forgiven of sin. You can be made right with God. You can be saved. If you've not made that decision, I pray you would not leave here today without doing so. Let's pray.